Today's scripture reading is Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Tanya. Um, Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. It's really good to see you today. My name is Chris Bennett, and I am uh, the lead pastor here. It's really good to be with you guys. Um, We're going to go ahead and jump into God's Word this morning. Uh, We're in a series on the book of Proverbs, obviously. And uh, Tanya, thanks for reading all 22 of those verses. Uh, She always gets the long text. And so, um, but uh, we're we're in a series in the book of Proverbs. And I will remind everybody, just by way of introduction or reminder, that the book of Proverbs is not just a book filled with random sayings on how to live life well. That's not what the book of Proverbs is. It contains seemingly random sayings on how to live life well, but more than that, I want to remind us what we discussed in week one when we laid the foundation for this series. If you remember in week one, we talked about how the Bible says that God created the world in wisdom. Wisdom was the impulse behind creation. Wisdom was. He created with his power, but wisdom was the why, the reason behind creation. And when God created creation, we are a part of that creation, and he gave his creatures, his, the chief of his creatures, humanity, a responsibility to carry on in his wisdom by bringing flourishing to this world. So, to be clear, God created by wisdom. The impulse of creation was wisdom. And when he created us, he gave us a responsibility to bring about flourishing to the world around us. That is wisdom. This is why at the beginning of Proverbs in chapter 1, it talks about how, in my own paraphrase, that it's it's wisdom for knowing how to live well in this world, because this world is dark and broken, but also it's wisdom so that we can live by justice and equity. 
justice and equity. In other words, wisdom is also an awareness of the brokenness of the world around us, and wisdom is the impulse so that we, by God's power, can bring healing to those broken structures and relationships in our society. It's all by wisdom. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about learning to live by wisdom. Yes, it's making good decisions. It's leading our lives well. It's making good decisions with our finances and raising our kids right and doing marriage well and doing friendship well and doing our jobs well and all that stuff is part of wisdom. But all of that is part of an overarching category, which is to bring about flourishing to our world. That's what humanity's chief responsibility is on the earth. This is what God's called us to do. And so uh, I want to go to Proverbs chapter 2, verses 11 through 19 first, before I go to the beginning of this text this morning. And in Proverbs 2, verses 11 through 19, um, the writer of Proverbs, in this part, it's Solomon. There are multiple writers of Proverbs, mainly it's Solomon. But in this part, Solomon says there are two kinds of people that we need to beware of. There are two kinds of people that will enter our lives. They are probably already a part of your life to some degree that you need to be aware of and stay away from. Now, before I get into this, the full counsel of Scripture does not advocate for a monastic sort of life in which we separate ourselves from those who might not know the Lord or might even reject Jesus. The Scriptures encourage us and command us to go to people and to make a place for them in our lives and to show hospitality to them and to love them, hopefully strengthening the believer and bringing the non-believer to faith in Jesus. It's real humanity, real, raw, rugged, loving humanity. But in this text... We're not talking about just the general responsibility for followers of Jesus to show hospitality to, to come one, come all. We're talking about people who have relational influence over us such that it reshapes and contorts the way that we think and the way that we behave. This is what we're talking about today. We're not talking about just relationships in general. We're talking about people who have powerful influence over us that can contort the way that we think and ultimately the way that we behave. This is what we're talking about here. And the two people that he says that we need to stay away from and be aware of, always know where they are and create some distance, is this. Men of perverted speech and the forbidden woman or the adulteress. Men of perverted speech and the adulteress. Now, I want to remind all of you that Proverbs is poetry. And implicit in poetry is emotion and feeling. And so words are formed and shaped in such a way that the writer wants his hearers or his readers to feel the strength and the gravity of his words. And so I know if I were to ask you, how many of you know of a person in your life that you would say is a man of perverted speech? You know, maybe a few of you would raise your hand. If I said, how many of you know of, uh, of the forbidden woman in your life or the adulteress? You know, who's going to actually admit that if I ask that? Like most of us don't know people who are, like, are that messed up. But again, he wants us to feel. 
He wants us to understand the gravity of what he's saying. And here's how I think we need to thread this needle. We need to remember who Solomon is talking to. Solomon is talking chiefly to his son. A couple of chapters later, he changes it to the plural, sons. It's not just his physical son, but all the young male nobles who are in the royal court. He's writing to them and training them because one day they are going to have responsibility in reporting to the king and helping the king to manage the kingdom of Israel. These are young male political leaders who are one day going to be unleashed to help the king lead Israel politically. You've got to read the book of Proverbs with that lens. Now, anyone can learn from Proverbs. Anyone can. Anyone can. But he's talking to these young sons. And so I don't think what he's saying is this. There are two kinds of people that you need to stay away from. The super, super, super evil men and super, super, super evil women in your life. I think what he's talking about, rather, is a type of person, male or female, who can enter into your life and undermine you and trick you and gain power in your life, and in this context, thus gain power over Israel. This is what he's trying to warn them of. He's warning them of these conniving men, men of perverted speech, who posture as allies and as friends, but only seek personal gain. Why? Because these boys have power. They're the nobility. They're the elites in Israel. And he's also warning against adulterous women who through their sexual lures seek to undermine the moral credibility of these boys leading to their disqualification in leading God's people. Now, throwing that into our lives, every one of us have people in our lives who seek to destroy us, to hurt us, to undermine our moral credibility, to destroy our families, to steal from us. There are people who maybe on a lesser level in our minds seek uh, selfish gain, And while they may not have some vicious vendetta against us, if we get in their way, they will not restrain from stabbing us in the back. We know people like this. We work with people like this, some of us do. People who we can, we can be on their good side, but if there's something about us that is impeding their perceived progress or upward mobility in the workplace, they will stop at nothing to destroy us. This world is a tragic place to live. That is the implication underneath all of the book of Proverbs. This world is a tragic place to live. And if you are not skilled in living in this world, you are going to be taken out. You're going to be taken out. And that leads to this next warning that he gives. He doesn't just warn against men of perverted speech and adulterous women. He also warns against this thing, maybe you've heard of it, called death. Called death. Now before I get to this thing on death, I do want to mention one thing. I think it's important that we, all cult- that we all conduct a relationship audit in our lives. 
I really think that's important. I think implicit in this, by warning us against certain toxic people in our lives, that we all should be conducting a relationship audit in our lives. He wants us to think about and assess the people who are in our lives. And so I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Um, I think that you should look at the people that you consider your closest friends And you should ask some of these questions about your friendship with these people. Not just about them, but about also your interaction with this group of people. Okay? Questions like this. Um, What are your conversation topics with your friends, your colleagues? What are your conversation topics? Do your conversation topics trend toward death or toward life? Less abstractly, do your conversation topics trend toward encouragement or not encouragement? Is encouragement rare in your conversations? For most people, I think that's the case. I think encouragement is rare. It's few and far between. And in those moments where we try to get really soulful and in touch with our hearts and our feelings and our expressing our needs or something that's on our hearts, usually we're pushed away through by some sort of wall of sarcasm. It's hard. It's hard to live that way. Um, So that's something we need to think about. Uh, Here's another question. What are the core values of your friendship groups? What are the core values? Core values. Well, Chris, I've never gotten together with my friends and said, what are our core values, uh, Jerry? Uh, what do you think? Um, I know that. But what I'm saying is that there are implicit core values in every relationship that you have. Implicit core values. You may have never talked about them, but there are core values that you have. And you can easily, or maybe not so easily, find and discern those values by looking at core behaviors and feelings that you have as you interact with your friends. For instance, do you easily find yourself in the doghouse with your friends? Is it easy to get there? Do you have to perform in order to be restored to full friendship membership? Do you have to perform? If that's the case, then judgment is a core value in your friendships, not grace. Judgment and condemnation. That is not a gospel-centered friendship. No matter how much you talk about theology, that is not a gospel-centered relationship. You can talk about it till the cows come home. You can quote theologians, all that stuff. Read Bible verses together. You don't have a gospel-centered friendship if you have to work hard to get out of the doghouse and get forgiveness. If you've got to earn forgiveness. Here's Here's another question you need to ask yourself. How do you and your friends speak, if you're married, speak about your spouses when they're not there? Do you speak honorably or dishonorably about your spouses when they're not present? No matter what their problems are. No matter what their issues are. Well, didn't God bring friends into my life to to get some advice? Yeah, yeah, you can get advice from friends, but if you are killing or tearing down your spouse behind their back, you are dishonoring that person, and it's not right, no matter what your spouse is guilty of. And if you've got super complex problems, come talk to one of our pastors. We'll help you walk through that. Talk to your community group leader. Find, it didn't even have to be a, a, a leader per se in the church. Find a godly person 
that will give you really good biblical advice about your marriage. Be proactive about being godly in the way that you talk about your spouse, but don't tear them down behind their backs. That's not a good sign if that's happening in your, in your sphere of relationships. Uh, here's another question. How do your friends speak of their other friends when they're not around? And a word to the wise. There's a lot of people who use drama and mean-spiritedness to bring in people like a tractor beam to make you feel like you're part of the inner circle. Many of us fall for that. When somebody's talking about somebody else, you feel like, oh, I'm a part of this person's inner circle. This person really loves me. I promise you, when you're not there, they say the same thing about you. If they do it about one person, they will do it about anyone. Anyone. How do they speak about their friends when their friends aren't present? Is it possible to be a part of this relationship circle and still be loved even if my brokenness is known to them? Will I still be loved even if they know about my brokenness? Which brings up another question. Is this friendship circle safe enough to be known? Can I really trust them with my brokenness? Can I trust them? And then last, and there there are many more questions maybe you can think of, but here's one more. Does this group generally bring about flourishing to the parts of the world that we touch when we're together? Does it bring about flourishing to the parts of the world that we touch when we're together? How do you interact with waiters or waitresses when you're together? How do you treat the opposite sex when you're together? How do you treat others when you're together? These are big, big questions. Does this group generally bring about the flourishing of the world around? I'm not saying this group's got to be perfect. It's got to be squeaky clean where you're always having Bible studies together. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the general tone and posture of this group. The general tone and posture. Or latent in your group, is there a racist impulse? Is there? Is there an elitism or materialism where you're judgmental of people who may not have the things that you have, drive the kind of car that you have, wear the kinds of clothes that you have? How do you judge people in your relationships? These are big questions to ask. And this leads, again, to the next point. He warns about the forbidden woman, the adulterous woman, and he warns about the man of perverse speech. But then he gives another warning, and this is where he gets a little more abstract in verses 18 and 19 when he says, for her house. And this isn't just for an adulterous woman per se. This is, for, this is a diagnosis of the kind of world that we live in. The Apostle Paul in uh, Galatians 1 says that we live in a present evil age. That's how he diagnosed this world. Even after Jesus, the present evil age. And he says about this present evil age, he says, her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Now this is what's interesting about death, particularly in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, death or die is mentioned or alluded to at least 40 times. In almost every single time except just a small handful, 
He is not talking about the isolated event of death, the cessation of life. Your heart stops beating, you die, you get buried. He's not talking about that. In the vast majority of times that he mentions death and dying in the book of Proverbs, he's talking about something fuller about death. Here's the way one theologian said it. He said in Proverbs, death is a whole realm in conflict with life. Death is a whole realm or culture, you could say, that is in conflict with life. He goes on to say this, if we think of physical death as the center of this realm, there is a far side wrapped in mystery that's known only to God. And that far side is the grave. It's the grave. It's called Sheol or Abaddon in the Old Testament. There's that far side, the grave. It's pictured as the deep abode of the dead. But then there's the near side. The near side. And the near side is when death, he says, throws its shadow over the living in the forms of sickness, calamity, and above all, sin. It's death when it throws its shadow over us now as we're living. Hearts are beating, air's pumping in our lungs, uh, we're, we're doing our thing, we're living our life, we're going to work, we're going home, we're watching TV, we're going to the beach. All this stuff, we, death has cast its shadow over life in the forms of sickness and sin and calamity in our world. A guy named Derek Kidner uh, about this says it this way, very ominously. A man can stray into death's territory and find himself among its citizens before he ever quits this earth. A man can stray into death's territory and find himself among its citizens before he ever quits this earth. Now that may sound melodramatic. It may sound melodramatic to the simple. You don't have to be simple. You can feel the gravity and the urgency of these words, and that's why he characterizes death, the grave, as a forbidden woman whose house is a grave. It's a grave. He wants us to feel fear, if you can believe that. He wants us to go, whoa, I want no part of this. He wants us to think before we ever even flirt with that woman at work where that's going to go if I do that. When she's telling me, you make me feel alive in a way that I haven't in years. You appreciate me in ways that my husband doesn't. Luring you in. And men, finding ourselves in relationships with other men who absolutely do not fear the Lord God. And every one of us in here have these relationships. Men whose hearts are hard. Women whose hearts are hard toward God. And these people in our lives are the main contributors to the way that we see this world and filter our behavior. If you don't think that's happening to you, open your eyes.
Open your eyes. Now, that's really a really grim introduction. Maybe the grimmest I've ever done. I don't know. But we're going to move to the beginning of Proverbs chapter 2 and look at the first handful of verses there because there's an alternative that we're given. There's an alternative that we're given. And Solomon says this in verses 1 through 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. My son, do you hear the urgency there? Do you notice the increased intensity as he draws his son and tries to compel his son to follow after wisdom, to seek lady wisdom? He says, receive, treasure. And there's another translation that rather than saying treasure my commands, it's collect them, collect them. The best part of the baseball season is going on right now. It's the only good part of the baseball season. And right now, these incredibly dramatic games are taking place. And the first thing that came to my mind when I was studying that were people who collect baseball cards. Sports memorabilia can be some, can be some valuable stuff. Ask OJ. He knows. And, uh, and people who collect, people who collect these baseball cards, they treasure them and they put them in these albums and protect them. And maybe down the road they find out, whoa, these things are worth a lot of money. I was watching a show the other day about a dude that was trying to help this family sell all this stuff so they could make some money. And he had this old, from when he was a kid, this, uh, 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 this book, this uh, album of all these baseball cards, and he could make thousands of dollars by selling these cards, and they're just sitting on a shelf in his closet. He says, collect my commandments and my sayings. What is he telling us? Get small. Be humble. If you're at a place in your walk with Jesus where you can't get small and get humble and get under others and sit under wisdom, no matter who it comes from, you are making a grave, grave mistake and you're setting yourself up to be exploited by men with forbidden lips and adulterous women. What's he telling us? The virtue of staying and being needy. The virtue of of humility and fighting for humility, striving for humility, reaching for humility, putting ourselves down so that we can hear. I'm not talking about self-loathing here, but I am talking about obliterating our pride, killing it, seeing your pride as death because pride is part of that shadow that Sheol casts on the realm that we live in now. Pride is. Later on in this book, he talks about some of the things that God hates the most. Pride is one of them. Things that make God's skin crawl. Things that make God just want to pull his supernatural hair out of his head. Pride. Pride. Now here's what's interesting. We're not just talking again about growing in wisdom so we can live this life and make it to the end as unscathed as possible. There's something else going on here that's sort of latent in this text. I want you to remember 
A few weeks ago, we talked about how uh, Solomon named wisdom something. Anybody remember what that name is? If you're going to say it, say it out loud. Say it. Own it. If you're wrong, it's okay. I love you. Forgive you. You don't have to. You're not in the doghouse. Say it out loud. What, anybody remember who wisdom is? It's a female lady. Say it, Chris. Own it. Lady wisdom. You got it. Man, you and that beautiful beard of yours. Lady wisdom. Um, lady wisdom. He names, he names her lady. Why does he say lady wisdom? Because he wants us to feel this. He doesn't want wisdom to be like a course that you can take through iTunes U. He wants lady wisdom, the, one of the most beautiful, gorgeous attributes of Yahweh himself to be personified somehow. He wants us to feel Lady Wisdom, interact with Lady Wisdom, have a relationship with Lady Wisdom, because he's not just talking about an idea. He's talking about God's personality. He wants us to know God. And this is why when you get into verses 5 and 6, he talks about how if we do these things, if we adopt this heart posture of collecting wisdom, making ourselves small, fighting for humility, then what we are doing is we are reaching for and learning the fear of God, but not just the fear of God, the knowledge of God. And to the Hebrews, knowledge was more than knowing something. Knowledge was experiencing something. The urge and the commandment to know God, to fear God, are one and the same. So when here's when he's saying this, I want you to hear this as a call to know God. Listen to this. My son... If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. He's not saying if you do this, if you get low, if you get humble, then you'll know stuff. He's saying if you get low and you get humble, and you love my commands, and you collect my leadership, you're going to meet Jesus. Now, I know they didn't know Jesus back then, but we do here on this side of the cross. We're going to meet Jesus. Or say it this way, grow in intimacy with Jesus. I want to grow in intimacy with Jesus. I don't know about you. I really want this in my life. I am totally unsatisfied and sometimes disgusted by the lack of intimacy with Jesus in my life. And I want more of Jesus. I want more of Jesus. But here is the catch. Here is the catch. And you knew there was going to be one. Here is the catch. And this explains a lot of times why we don't often grow in our relationship with Jesus. He's giving us how to know God in the context of this broken, jacked-up world. And I don't think those two things can be separated. Intimacy with God doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. We live in a world in the throes of natural disasters, suffering, the oppressive acts of the evil, sickness, disease, our own evil impulses, not to mention 
all sorts of satanic and demonic interference in human affairs. We live in that world. Unfortunately, many of us are misguided in our noble pursuit of God. We want to experience God, but usually in the context of trouble-free ecstasy. This is why we're at church every Sunday when things are going good. And when things aren't going good, we're gone for three weeks. We don't know how to find the presence of Jesus in the midst of turmoil. I don't say that to patronize or to condemn anyone here. I know that's hard. I know it's hard when you're fatigued spiritually and your hope has been deflated by problems and sometimes catastrophes. But I want you to remember that he's talking to his son and he loves his son. He says, man, we live in a broken world. But this broken world can be the very vehicle that God uses for you to see his face. Quit praying for your problems to go away and then reconnect with Jesus. Go deep in Jesus now. I'll never forget, I've, I shared this about six or eight months ago, so forgive me if you've heard this, but I couldn't stop thinking about this. It's one of the most profound images I've ever seen. Uh, one, one of my, my roommates, who is from Hamburg, Germany, when I was in college, a dear friend, um, he had another friend. Um, an African man who was going to school where we were. And uh, this African man, he and his family came to, to college and his house caught fire. He got his family out safe to, safely. And my friend Marco loved this man so much. He was a dear, dear brother and dear uh, ally. And uh, I didn't know this man very well. Uh, but in an impulsive moment, he made a terrible, terrible, tragic mistake and he thought he could run in and get the car out of the garage. And he never came out. He died of smoke inhalation. And my friend Marco was totally devastated. To say, to, that's an understatement. I will never forget, after lunch, sitting in my dorm room on my bed, or coming in, I'm sorry, and Marco had, had been, I guess, alone all morning, mourning and grieving the loss of this dear brother. And I walked in to this intensely holy place. I opened the door and Marco was on the bed with his guitar. He could barely play and his voice wasn't that much better. And he was on his bed strumming and singing to God and worshiping God, tears rolling down his face. And I just remember like, I almost left, but I didn't. And I just quietly shut the door and sat in my bed and just sat there and just, I couldn't help but pray. It was one of the most profound moments where I experienced the presence of God and it was in the context of total tragedy, devastating tragedy. Another person just the other day told me, a friend here in the church, she said, you know, I don't like hard times, but I find that I sense the presence of Jesus more when I'm going through hard times and I worship him than not. It sounds like some of you can affirm that. Intimacy with God cannot be separated from the brokenness of this world. Quit waiting for problems to go away and then, and then follow Jesus and then give him your all. Allow the problems and the sufferings of this present evil age 
to be the way that you go to him and the way that you grow in him and the way that you become intimate with him, with Jesus. Um, Most powerfully, we meet with God in our own pain, in our own trials, as we learn to navigate this life in this broken world. To know God is more is more than the acquisition of skillful living. To know God is living skillfully while cultivating a heart that is tender toward God. Troubles say a lot about us. Troubles often show us how hard our hearts are to God. We think they're tender toward God because I can feel Jesus when Rich plays the beautiful the, the guitar so beautifully. That is not the test of a heart that is tender toward God, that you can feel Jesus in praise and worship. The test that a heart is tender toward God is when troubles come our way. I don't love troubles. I'm not saying you should. But when troubles come our way, do they show us? They do show us what we're made of, the condition of our faith. I'm not saying like your troubles. But I'm saying maybe after you confess them away and they don't go away after two or three years, maybe God's trying to say something. Maybe God's telling us something. He's trying to speak to us through our troubles. Sadly, in our world, triumphalistic uh, corner of Christianity, which happens to be America, we have almost no category for suffering, none. And yet it is a subject that is systemic in our scriptures, systemic. And so there's a heart posture we've got to have in this present evil age if we really want to know God. We're receiving We're treasuring. We're making our ear attentive. We're inclining our hearts. We we, we notice the ways that our hearts eschew wisdom. And we go, no, uh, uh, no, 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 no. That's, That's broken. That's jacked up. And we bend our hearts rather around wisdom. The people, the godly people that are imperfect that God has put in our lives that we want to blow off. We say, no, 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 no. These people that God has put in my life, brokenness and all, they have something to say to me that I need to hear. So I will bend my heart around this brother or this sister. This is what it looks like to get small, to get humble. Why does God tell us to do that? Because God wants us to have a crappy life? Is that why? Because a lot of times we think that. It's because God loves us. And I want you to notice here, Behind all of this is a guy talking to his kid, a dad talking to his son. He says, if you'll hear my words. I'm not saying that anybody here is, you've got to go to someone here as though they're a priest between you and God. But there's a lot in the scriptures that talks about how, like Ephesians 4, that when we are joined together like body parts, how the power of God goes from one person to another. I can't explain how that works. I know recently, for me, I was having a moment of, to say despair would be too strong, but deep discouragement. And a dear friend of mine came to me and reminded me of who I am in Jesus, of what my identity is. And he gave me a test. He said, I want you for the next season of your life, every day, to get alone with God. And every day I want you to write down a journal the things that you're, you, you can feel gratitude for in your life. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, I'm giving you homework. I'm like, oh, busy. 
Yeah, everybody's busy. Just do it. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And so I told him I would. And, and uh, he said, now, I don't want you making lists. This isn't about just writing down things, then going on watch, watching, watching TV again. I want you to get alone. I want you to get small. I want you to wait. And I want you to experience the presence of God and start writing down the things that you feel gratitude for. Feel it. Feel it. It's been a really, really helpful exercise for me. The Holy Spirit didn't whisper that to me when I was driving in the car. It took a brother in Christ to come to me and say, hey, do this. God spoke to me. God spoke to me. When we live in isolation, we cut ourselves off from that kind of encouragement. I've got a friend, another friend who said it this way. He's one of my mentors. He says, uh, Chris, I need you to encourage me every day. He goes, you know why? I was like, uh, no, because the Bible says I need encouragement every day. I'm like, okay. I remember that verse in Hebrews, to encourage one another while it's called today. Encourage. We need that. We need that. You don't opt out of that once you grow in Jesus. If you're going to grow in Jesus, you stay in that. And so as we do this, there's this promise that's given to us. There's these blessings that God will pour on us if we get small and do this. And what I want you to do is close your Bibles or hit your home button if you've got one of those on your phone. And I want you to listen to this as I, as I speak this over you. As I speak this over you. Because he says this, if we get small, if we incline our heart to wisdom and understanding, and then know the fear of God, here's what happens in the lives of people who are small, who are submitted, who are working against their pride. This is what happens in their lives. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of the saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. To be clear, we are not talking about earning God's love. This is not about earning God's love. These people that he was writing to in Proverbs were already God's covenant people which is why the word Hebrew word Yahweh is used throughout the book of Proverbs. They are already God's people. We're talking about the skill of living this life well and growing in a relationship with God. And notice that he says, discretion will watch over you. What does that mean? It means that as we get small, kill our pride, discretion will begin to grow inside of us and we will begin to make wiser decisions. It doesn't mean that we'll have some ecstatic experience when we're at this life crossroads, our eyes will roll back into our head, a glow blue will come around us and we'll, like an android, make the right decision. It means that the discretion that God has given us will naturally come out of us. He's telling us that wisdom can be impulsive rather than stupidity. 
He's telling us that wisdom, discretion can be our natural reaction to the complexities of this world rather than having to fight our appetites that want the death and darkness, which is all we've known. And I want you guys to have that too. I want that. I want that. God, I pray for your mercy in our church. I pray for your mercy on your people that you love. Mercy, oh God, mercy. I pray, Jesus, that you would open our eyes and that we would hate simplicity and folly. I pray, Jesus, that we would see the truth, the beautiful banquet that Lady Wisdom has made for us, bottomless wisdom and knowledge, unceasing charity from the hand of Lady Wisdom. Help us, God, to really believe and follow her because as we follow her, we're seeking after you. In Jesus' name.